Yo. <laughs> is this Mr. Brooks? Is this Miss Rose? <laughs> this is Miss Rose, yes. That's Mel Brooks. The Mel Brooks. This is Details, Please. I'm Rose Reed, and my co-host is Gail Reed, my mother. Every episode, we attempt to get to the bottom of things. We want to ask questions and get answers that haven't been shared before, perspectives that haven't been articulated yet. We're interested in the details. For this first season, we are featuring a mini-series on our greatest musical influences. I'm not a musician myself, but my mother plays guitar, and our house always had music. I was a trained dancer, and music just moves me. It's like a part of my DNA. And I grew up listening to the music of my people, Broadway musicals. And fittingly, for our first episode, we spoke with a family icon, Mel Mel Brooks. The Indian chief from Blazing Saddles. No, no, seid nicht mehr sugar. Laws im gain! The 2,000-year-old man. Sir, most, uh, we know that many, many hundreds of years ago, most men had more than one wife. Yeah. Did you practice polygamy in those days? I never practiced it. I was perfect at it. <laughs> the man who dared to take on George Lucas with space balls. And I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. I grew up in Atlanta. My dad's waspy family has been in Georgia since the Revolutionary War. And my mom is, obviously, a proud Brooklyn Jew. My sister and I were the only Jewish kids in our elementary school. And for me, being Jewish was always secondary. And it was always in the private sphere. My sister and I spent Wednesday and Friday nights with my mom's parents, Irene and Norman. My grandpa would make me an egg cream, and we would watch the producers, or To Be or Not To Be, lying on the beige carpet in their living room. I realized that there was this whole world of humor. And now as an adult, I realized that Mel Brooks's work was the birthplace for my sense of humor, and that being Jewish was maybe something to be proud of. So... How would one prepare to speak to Mel Brooks? For me, that turned out to be its own kind of Mel Brooks movie. Even my mother was nervous. My heart is going boom, 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 I have misplaced my f***ing keys twice in five minutes in that stupid, stinking, tiny little purse. Oh, my God. Jesus, do you know this big-ass key ring I do? Oh, God. I'm nervous, that's all. That's good, it's good. Nervous energy is good. That's That's one thing I've learned. I called my grandparents for some quick advice beforehand, and it turned into its own kind of Yiddish lesson. I guarantee if you speak Jewish, then Mel Brooks will speak with you. Funny, how do you say funny? Funny is funny. In Jewish, Harry. Oh, am I mentioned? So as I, as I, will you remember? Oh, I'm dying. I'm <laughs> You're such a brat. <laughs> She's hysterical. 
Because I'm talking Danish. <laughs> I mean, every Yiddish word you say has a question mark on the end. He makes people to laugh a lot. Oh. Write that down, sweetie. All right, I gotta go practice. <laughs> but don't call him a glacier touch. No! <laughs> And then we were on the phone with Mel Brooks. I heard things like, Mel Brooks was born in Brooklyn in 1926. He had three older brothers, and his father passed away when he was a baby. My mom and I talked to him about these early days when he was king of the corner. Paul Whiteman's music and music of the 20s and 30s. Did your mom speak to you in Yiddish at all? Is that where you learned Yiddish? She, she knew very little Yiddish. My grandmother spoke mostly in Yiddish, <clears throat> you know, except for a few words she didn't know were not Yiddish. She would say things like, "If a guy went off the subway," <laughs> what does that mean? He she went on the subway. A guy sanakin, gaganafin. Yeah. <laughs> My grandmother spoke Yiddish and didn't know that she was using English words like. F and the Vinda, you know. What's that mean? Uh, window is, in, is yeah. English. My mother had an Irish accent. She'd say, flush the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm from a family full of kibitzers. My father, this is Gail. Um, I grew up, I was born in Brooklyn, grew up on Long Island. And my dad was the big prankster of his family. He was legendary at his uncle's uh, hotel in the, in the Catskills, waking guests up with the PA system at <laughs> and three the in the morning. They still tell me that story. Uh, and then getting on the night after and saying, I'm sorry that I woke everyone up at three in the morning and this will be the last night. Um, and he was always at the center of the tension. But what, what, when I think about, and I've, you know, I've been reading about you, Mr. Brooks, but you know, my dad did what his father did. He became a deli man. My grandfather owned a kosher deli uh, at Franklin and Carroll. And they lived over the store. So I'm curious where you, this, you know, the fourth child and, uh, you know, raised by your mother and your brothers, where did you get the chutzpah to make your way from Brooklyn to Hollywood? And what convinced you that you were so unique that you were going to make it? I have no explanation for that. It's in the, whatever it is, uh, you know, I have one word that might explain a great deal. Being the uh, being the baby, so to speak, of the family, four boys. My father died when I was only two, and my mother was a, like, I don't know, she's a hero. She raised she raised these four boys, and and uh, anyway, I was uh, I was the baby, and I was baby. I was always comfortable in everything I did. I I you know literally felt blessed. Everybody you know kissed me and, 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 and gave me uh, Yankee Doodles, which are cupcakes with cream in the middle. I was just like a little birdie in the nest, and everything was warm and good, and they gave me worms, and I feel was, everything was great. My, my mother was a saint. My mother dressed me in the cold winter mornings in Brooklyn. She, she would uh, put my little trousers and my stockings. He wore stockings when you were a little kid then. And my blouse... 
and she'd put them on the radiator. And then she would dress me with those warm clothes under the covers. When I pulled the cover off, I was warm. I jumped out of bed. I didn't know I was poor. I didn't know I was Jewish. I just knew things were right. No idea that it was from a minority of any kind. I said, we used to feel sorry. You know, if there was, if there was somebody, you would go, go, go through the neighborhood who was German or Irish or black, we'd say, give them something. <laughs> it was good to be Jewish in New York. Yeah, I know. I grew up with that, too. I moved out of Brooklyn as soon as I was in the Army, and I came back from the war, and I, I left Brooklyn. I left my mother's apartment. We say, we say house, you know, house. three tiny rooms with 10 people living in my mother's house. And then when I left, I, I got a job. I went to the village, and you know, I was working clubs and stuff as a musician, as a comic dinner. I thought it was a very brave thing that you enlisted in the Army, because you were really young. You probably... Yeah, yeah. You didn't enlist to fight. No. Oh. <laughs> I to go to college. I didn't know they were going to make me fight, and I thought <laughs> I would have thought twice. <laughs> I enlisted uh, in the Army Specialized Training Reserve program when I was 17. And then uh, when you were 18, then I went into the regular Army. They sent me... You know, this is so funny. You're in Atlanta, right? Yes, we are. I was the Army at 17. I left high school, and the Army sent me to college, to Virginia Military Institute. And I went. I was there for a, for a year. I mean, it was just, it was great. I loved it. Like you danced with girls with, uh, with hoop skirts. You couldn't get near them. <laughs> and they were all blondes. I walked the streets of Williamsburg and weeped. Longing for the old days when I was a baby boy and and played roller hockey and my brothers were alive and you know but you know time goes on. Mr. Brooks is one of the dozen people to claim the title of EGOT, winning an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. But to my grandparents, who have been a fan and supporter of his since he started as a TV writer in the 40s, they think of Mr. Brooks more like a family member. You know, the one you know intimately, but is too busy to come home for holidays. While my mom and I spoke with Mr. Brooks about his humor and musicality, I kept thinking of my grandparents, like as if they were two Altacaca Muppets in the balcony of my mind. Do you remember to be or not to be? Oh, yeah. I do. Mom, say, say the scene, the opening scene with the Polish. So in, in the beginning of the uh, movie that Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft did, they're on stage and they're singing this sweet Georgia Brown you know, some sweet Georgia Brown, but they're singing it in Polish. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Mel Brooks looks at the camera and says, <laughs> singing in Polish is much too difficult. <laughs> so then they, they speak English for the rest of the movie. Pretty, pretty Georgie Brown. 
So I just wanted to ask you, um, Mr. Brooks, you're, you're known for your tremendous sense of humor and your quick wit, but I'm, I'm very curious about how you um, moved or added music into your, your repertoire. And we were recently watching To Be or Not To Be. I was trying to show Rose some <laughs> of your- I was trying to memorize Sweet Georgie. Sweet Georgie yeah, Brown. Yeah. I was trying to describe to her how you, how you, 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 you started it with, with your wife, Anne Bancroft, and you sang uh, the opening number in Polish, you know, <laughs> and then you turned to the audience. God bless you. That was a great idea. And more so, I said, well, let's do a jazz number and sing it in Polish. <laughs> and then you're like, let's do the rest in English. This is too hard. <laughs> we don't want people walking out of the theater, you know. <laughs> right, right. Who can't understand? So there's a lot of layered humor just in that opening scene. And I'm just curious if you see, for, for you, uh, an intersection between music and comedy. Is there a commonality that you think draws you to love both of them? I think so. I think, you know, music is so close to comedy. Comedy is so close to music. How, how so? The center of both are the word rhythm. I learned to play the drums when I was 14. Uh, I went to Abraham Lincoln High School in Brighton Beach. We only moved away from Williamsburg for two years and then moved back to Williamsburg. But in those two years, I went to Abraham Lincoln High School, and uh, I, I, I loved the drums, so I went out to be, you know, there were three of us. There was the first drummer, the second drummer, and the third drummer uh, for various events and for um, replacing each other when, when others couldn't drum. So I was 14. I was one of the drummers learning you know, being taught by a, by a good drum teacher. And, and uh, one of the players in the band who played, uh, he was also 14, was Mickey Rich. He played alto sax. And he was a cute guy and a funny guy, and I was funny. And, and so I walked him home once, and I, he said, you know, my brother's a drummer, and I, I never put it together. And uh, when I got to his home in Brighton Court on 10th Street, I looked, I came in, and there was a set of drums. And there was BR, oh my God, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Buddy Rich was considered one of the most influential drummers of his time. He was known for his virtuoso technique, power, and speed. Many of his contemporaries considered Rich the world's greatest drummer. I, you know, I said, you think you'd mind if I sat at the drums? And, you know, I took the stick, I sat at the drum set, and I played a little bit, and I heard from the doorway, not bad, not good. <laughs> <laughs> that was Buddy, wow. That's amazing. Hold the stick this way. Here, uh, put, put your right foot all the way on the pedal when you hit the... the you know, the base. Here, a rim shot is you hit the snare and the rim at the same time. And he was, he was a very tough teacher, you know, best jazz drummer that ever lived. You know, you, you talk about having this natural rhythm, and I think of your jokes, you know, like in your, you know, your take on Dracula, and you were looking at the coffin, and you say, she's dead, she's Nesferatu, she's Italian? You know, there's always this rhythm. I'm, and could you say, um, do you think that, what's easier for you, to write a joke or a song? Well, you know, j jokes are funniest 
if they come out of story and character. Joke, a joke by itself is good for a stand-up comic at Grossinger's. But funny really has to come from a situation in which we like the characters. So they're not jokes. They're humor. They're comedy. There are, you know, there are jokes like, classic jokes, like my wife asked me, for, she said for my next birthday, I'd love, love to go to you know, someplace I've never been, so I took it to the kitchen. <laughs> yes. I've never dealt with jokes, except to steal them, like Milton Berle, from every other comic, you know, that steal the good ones, you know. But most, my, my humor comes from a character and situation. I, I was reading in your biography how you, uh, you know, I, I assume it's true how you came to write the first song, The Springtime for Hitler, in uh, The Producers. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Your, your wife told you to take a pencil and a pad and that you were musical and to go in a room and write a song. I was going to call somebody, I don't know, like people I knew, like, like Jerry Herman, and say, you know, right. Can you give me a title song for, uh, I was, it was in the middle of the, a movie that you may not know called The Twelve Chairs. Yeah, they sell, it's like the Russian literature. They sell the diamonds in the chairs. Good for you. That's it. The Ilf, Ilya Ilf and Evgeny Petrov wrote a beautiful book called The Twelve Chairs. A friend of mine asked me to read it and said, maybe this will make a good movie. I said, this will make a great movie. So, uh... I did it, but I finished the movie, I needed a title song. And said, no, don't go to Jerry Arnold. Here's a legal pad. Go upstairs and write a song. So I did. So, you know, what What impresses me about your, your, your music, Mr. Brooks, is that so many of the great early musicals that I know you admired um, were written by a famous pair of, of, of a songwriting team. Mm -hmm. Like, even George Gershwin didn't write words with his music. His brother Ira wrote the words. There were a couple of guys who were terrific, like Cole Porter, yes. who wrote words and music. I get no kick from champagne. That's Cole Porter. How about mm -hmm. Irving Berlin? Words and music. How about Frank Lesser? Guys and Dolls. Words and music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And Melvin Brooks. Yeah, <laughs> Melvin Brooks. So what comes more naturally to you, writing the words or writing the music? The music is easier. It flows. Either, either you feel it and it flows or, or you don't have it. The words are hard because the words are poetry. They've got to, uh, they've got to express themselves succinctly in emotions. They've got to rhyme. They've got to have a certain pattern. The words are very difficult. The, and you want to make sure that they're brilliant and beautiful and graceful. But the music, he, like there's a guy called Andreas Putzinas. You remember him from the producers. He was the roommate of Roger Debris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's unforgettable. <laughs> I tried to color of a cop, very gay, very gay Andreas. <laughs> Andreas was a very dear friend of, of Anne and myself. And he would always say, well, you got it or you ain't, you know? <laughs> and it's true. I have a little grandson who's just 12, and he, when he was nine, he was just, music flooded through him, and he would sing tunes that he'd made up, make up by himself, and 
he has it, you know. That's what, that must be wonderful to see. Yeah, it's terrific. He wrote a musical with Casablanca for his school. He did? <laughs> he wrote six songs, you know, he's amazing. Either you're, you're right in the middle of the note, or you drift a little and it's not so good. Right, and you you know you are you you know you sing on key and you 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 always hum and you burst into song. It's it just comes out of you. It's infectious. I mean, yeah, I'm lucky. I mean, some people are always right on the note. I'm always in the center of the note. So is my grandson. It's a good question because the words are hard. Either music, music, you don't have to worry. Either you're blessed or you're not. I mean, in my heart you are. The reason that I love Mel Brooks is because every time I watch him, it makes me think of you. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, the reason that Mel Brooks is so funny is that you, his audience that appreciates his jokes, they buy in, you know? Like, they're kind of with him for the ride, and they all feel like the audience feels like they're in on an inside joke that Mel Brooks makes, yeah, and I, well, I, I always kind of felt that way about you. I always kind of felt like I knew what you were joking on. What, what do you think is your favorite? The 2,000-year-old man is a genius. That really made him big. So I was wondering if you guys could ask him one question, what would it be? Well, what's his favorite picture? One that he made, or, or yeah, yeah one that he made. That he, he likes to look back on. Which projects do you think brought you the most joy to make? Which one? You mean? Yeah, you made so many movies, and you you did plays, and you did you know two thousand year old man with your friend Carl Reiner, and you did a out you know a Hitchcock homage and High Anxiety, and you did a western in Blazing Saddles, and you know you did Young Frankenstein. Looking back, it's hard. To, it's very hard. At the time, you were blessed with the joy of doing something that you loved, and it was working. If you look at your <laughs> hand. Look at your hand, you spread your fingers out, and if I would say to you, oh, well, which finger do you like the best? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, don't be silly. They're my fingers, you know. So that's, you know, it's the same thing. All my work, you know, they're my fingers. Every, I like them all. I like them all, you know. And sometimes uh, you wish the pinky would bend a little better, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, one of the, you know, I'm an unmarried woman, 31 in Brooklyn, and I'm so convinced that finding a romantic partner is, you know, really important. And one of the things that kind of takes me aback is when I really learn of longtime friendships and really complex relationships like the one you have with Carl Reiner, who's a friend, a co-creator and a, a you know, co-performer and 2,000-year-old man. You guys have dinner together regularly. And um, I was just wondering if you um, could describe having that kind of relationship throughout your life. Well, you know, I love Carl. I met him, you know, 
We were both kids. We were we were both in our late twenties, and uh, we were writing. He was performing, and I was writing the show of shows, starring Sid Caesar, Howie Morris, and the great Max Lehman was our producer director. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just had the same. We were on the. We were. We were. You know, had the same beat and the same take on life, and we were. You know. We were just joined together, you know, like Siamese twins, and we've been we've been friends for you know sixty years, seventy years. We're just pals. And uh, let me tell you, Carl Reiner is ninety-five. Wow. Yeah. He was six, like a little over six feet when I met him. See, and now he's ninety-five. He's like, you know, maybe maybe five ten. He's and his head, you know. Is kind of bent, always looking down. He's always, you know, his eyes are down. He tries to get his back up, but it's hard for 95. But he still has a good sense of humor. So I asked him, how do you feel? How are you? <clears throat> what did you eat? Uh, what did you see on television? What do you, you know, I asked him a ton of questions. And he says, stop, stop, stop. No, no. There's only one question I want to hear from you. I Ask me only one question. <laughs> He's a crazy guy, I said. He said, I'll give you the question. I said, okay. What's the question I should ask you? He said, I want you to ask me, what color are all the floors in my house? (laughs) (laughs) So he said, okay, here we go. In the living room, dark green. In the bedroom, pink. I mean, he's always looking down, so he knows all the Oh, I see. Yeah. Still got it. He's still funny, you know. And he writes books. He keeps writing books. You know, I get and he 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 knows I'm smart, and he keeps saying, "Give me a title. Give me a title." (laughs) (laughs) Have you given him some titles for his books? So for the last book, I said, "Too busy to die." (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's coming out next. I I like that a lot. Such a hazak masha. My favorite? Oh, for now, for and for. In How about more bees, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. <laughs> you know, they wanted to cut that scene. It was oh, really... Oh, God. That, that's the yeah. best scene in the movie. I know. Except the one when... Uh, the guy punched the horse. My mom described seeing your, uh, you know, being in the South, you know, talk about Jewish humor. And it's like, you know, it really goes over people's heads. And um, that's why I loved your movie so much as a kid. And my mom told me that when she saw Blazing Saddles in Atlanta, she and my dad, like in pain, they were laughing so hard. But I think they were the, probably the only people laughing. At the no, movie. no, everyone was laughing. But I was at the Yiddish jokes, at the Yiddish. Yes, at the Yiddish jokes. I could always tell where the Jews were because <laughs> I played a Jewish Indian. Yes, I did. <laughs> When I spoke in Yiddish, I'd hear shrieks from some part of the balcony. The Jews are here. here. No, I'm uh, Mr. Brooks. I swear, I was. uh, This was Atlanta. 
the, the year that I saw it in the theater. So whatever year it came out, I was still in college. 74, 75. Yeah, I was, you know, was in my, I was 20. And uh, my husband and I went to see it with a group of his friends. The, the theater was packed. Oh, and we were sweating. And I know I was the only Jew in that theater. Trust me. It was the south side of town. There were no, you know, it was just me. And um, it was, it was something else. But everybody... Everybody laughed at, you know, because the, the thing about when you watch that movie now, what you realize is even though there's so much Yiddishkeit humor in it, there's a lot of other humor that, you know, that appeals to everybody. Right. It was like the modern satire. Mel Brooks loved paying homage to his favorite film genres in the work that he did. But he would always put his satirical touch on it. And as was the case when he made Young Frankenstein in 1974. Starring some of his favorite people, like Gene Wilder. My name is Frankenstein. Cloris Leachman. I am Paul Bluchel. Marty Feldman as Igor. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the toyvin. Oh, please. And Peter Boyle as the monster. Mel wrote a hilarious script, but he used old props and he filmed in the style of the original 1930s films in black and white. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types of Who's writing music? I just wrote, I'm doing Young Frankenstein in London in October. And I, I you know, I've, I've gotten rid of a lot of it and I've added a a, a, a brilliant new song. There's a lot of good people, you know. The only American, <clears throat> there's only one American, is going to be Shuler Hensley, who played the monster on Broadway, who played, you know, Put you in the ring! <laughs> the only American, because nobody could do that, right? You know, we were, we were watching uh, something together, and Gene Wilder said that, um, you know, when when you made Young Frankenstein, that you know they came from memories of childhood, and memories of childhood are, are scary. Um, you know, you're often scared, but when you look back, you know you can add the humor to it. And he also made this wonderful comment, saying somebody asked him, "Oh, was it significant the first time you talked to Mel Brooks?" And he laughed, saying, "Was it significant when God talked to Moses?" <laughs> I think you know, I've I've gotten. Uh, I had five or six, maybe seven players that were in every single movie I made, you know. She was part of a stock company that I used mercilessly in every picture I could my hands on them. Between Madeline Kahn and Cloris Leachman and Gene Wilder, a lot of players, it's, as long as Harvey Corman was alive, it was every movie I could shove in it. <laughs> I wanted to, the funniest thing I heard Cloris Leachman say about you was, "I pretend we're married sometimes, just to myself usually." <laughs> She's what a wonderful person. I mean, she was people like Dita Boyle and Marty Feldman, and I mean, these anytime Ron Carey. There were, there were a lot of a lot of players, except if I, uh, you know, I was in Europe. But Dom DeLuise, one of my great players, came all the way to Yugoslavia to work with me. He would say things. This this is Dom DeLuise. 
uh, who loves eating more than anything in the world, and put on a little weight, you know, he loves food. And he would say things like, uh, would you please pass the rose? Hurry! <laughs> <laughs> so funny, so, so delicious. Oh, by the way, on June 30th and July 1st, for two nights, I will be in person at Wynn's Hotel, the Encore Hotel, Wynn's in Las Vegas. Ooh. You. Are you singing or telling jokes or both? What are you doing? I'm singing a little bit. I am I'm doing old stand-up jokes like... I met a girl that was so skinny, this girl was so thin, I took her to a restaurant, the matrix, he said, check your umbrella. That's how skinny my face was. <laughs> Those are the kind of bad jokes I will be telling. <laughs> I heard a joke. Can I give it to you? Tell me. Okay, so... You know how um, older Jewish couples, they go um, on the tours, you know, in Europe, you know, on the buses, like a group tour. No. Okay. 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 <laughs> he gets it. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, they're they're doing the day where it's the obligatory day, the tour of Auschwitz, and so they go up, and there's the uh, old husband and wife, and as they go up the mountain and the bus, they get in a huge fight, and by the time they get to the camp, they go their separate ways, and they don't talk for the entire day. They tour Auschwitz. They get back on the bus, and the husband turns to his wife and he says, "I'm so sorry. The fight was all my fault." And she goes, now you tell me, after you ruined Auschwitz for me. <laughs> I, I, listen, I've been around. Jack, why am I you heard it. Heard, you know, you told Jack Leonard some of that. You ruined Auschwitz for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm going to add your, your chutzpah to that. a little bit of Rose, Gail and I love those names. So. Gittles, my, my Hebrew name. You should have been living on the fourth floor. Yeah, Gail and Rose, they're, yeah, they're having a party tonight. <laughs> you think I would have moved up in life, but I'm still on a fourth floor walk up in Williamsburg, so there you go. Yeah, well, you, you, you girls are good. This, this was good. Everybody would give them my love. <laughs> Mr. Brooks, Mr. Thank Brooks, you. thank you. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. You did it. It took hours to shake off the nerves. Then we debriefed my grandparents. Of course, Irene had her own takeaway on our conversation with Mr. Brooks. That's, that's what the, the, the whole gist of Judaism is making fun of and uh, being funny and joking <laughs> around. Even if things are bad or, or, or sad or whatever, you kid around, you feel better. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Details, Please. Mom and I are so delighted you got to eavesdrop on our conversation with Mr. Brooks. 
You can read more about this interview, the music and films we featured in this episode on our website, detailsplease.org. Thank you very much to Mr. Brooks and his team, Samantha Reed, Wendy Zuckerman, Joseph Lavelle Wilson, Stevie Lane, Julia Donahue, Bobby Benet, Dave Schlussman, Alex Kappelman, Samaya Adams, Emily Kennedy, Christine Cover, and Matilda Holst. This episode was produced by myself and edited by me and Gail Reed. Our theme music is by Tony Matala. Dar Hirsch scored and mixed this episode. This is a Rose Reed production. And a very special thanks to Matthew Reed and, as always, my grandparents, Irene and Norman Margolis. Rosie, you are a pusher. At the end of the conversation, ask him if he has a son that's not married. And if he is married, ask him, is he happy? Next week on Details, Please, I talk to my childhood icon, Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. It's never been something where we felt that that sure about ourselves. We just do it because we are completely compelled to do it, you know? <laughs>